Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask how big Ferrari's team orders problem really is and give our verdict on F1 2019. races into the 2019 Formula One season and we're starting to get a clear picture both of the competitive order and the kind of racing that will characterise the year. Of course, each of the first four tracks of the season, Albert Park, Bahrain, Shanghai and the Baku Circuit F1 visits this weekend, are a little bit unusual and they're very specific tracks in terms of the car demand, but we're going to try and make some sense of what we're seeing and to get to the bottom of some of the big stories so far. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me first is a special guest crossing over from another podcast, Michael Laminado from the F1 Strategy Report podcast. Now, listeners will probably be able to guess where you're from by your accent, but tell us a little bit about yourself and the F1 Strategy Report podcast. Uh, yes. Hi, Ed. Uh, it's so tempting to put on an accent at this point now. You've led me straight into that. But uh, from Australia, of course, the name is Italian and the nasliness is a common aeroplane cold symptom, which I suppose you can dissect into that. And uh, yeah, the F1 Strategy Report, of course, is a well, it sort of says in the name, doesn't it? It's a wrap up of strategy in races we managed to put together after every Grand Prix. 
yeah, and appropriately enough, we will have a little bit of look about strategy later on and the way things have gone so far this year. Now we've got a, a sample set of uh, of three races, but yeah, well, uh, well worth listening to. And of course, the you were in Shanghai a few uh, a few days ago. I was in Shanghai, so we've. Uh, Rather than recording this in Shanghai when we're both in the same place, we've waited until we're 10,000 odd miles apart to do it. May as well use the internet. There's a modern technology that will probably last the whole show. Exactly. It's a, it's a global production, so that's very good. And also joining me is, is podcast regular Ben Anderson. Now, Hello. we've talked in the past about your Lotus Tractor. So there's a great video I was watching the other day with you driving around in a Lotus 79 with, with the 3D, 3D video. Yeah, amazing. And the wonders of modern technology, which, as we say, we hope doesn't fail us in this uh, international flavoured podcast. Uh, yeah, thank you for recalling yet again uh, some of the finest memories of my career so far, yeah, driving the Lotus 79. Very special. It looked like your helmet strap wasn't done up. Someone was pointing that out. It's flapping around. Were you that confident you weren't going to go off? I just thought I would, you know, evoke the uh, the dangers of the era by uh, being blasé about safety standards. No, um, I think it's just the, you know, the tightening of the helmet strap leads to the the overrunning bit of the strap flapping around in the wind. Ah, so you just got a lot of play in case you just get a larger head one day. Well, yeah, exactly. You, know, you, you want to grow into your race helmet. I guess I'm not used to that much play when I obviously I don't race anymore. When I used to race, because I've got a slightly uh, larger neck, larger, larger neck, <laughs> more chins, etc. So it's a, yeah, a bit you know what chin. they say: large neck, fast driver. Exactly, exactly. As, as I <laughs> comprehensively disproved. Uh, well, let's get on with uh, with talking about uh, about what we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll go to uh, Michael first. Now, in China last weekend, we saw Ferrari tying itself in knots over the management of its two drivers, gave Charles Leclerc the chance to press on early on, then eventually ordered Sebastian Vettel past. This caused them a few problems. So how big a problem in general, rather than just in that specific race, do you think team principal Mattia Bonotto has got here? Because we've seen this, well, in a couple of races, even in Australia, they came quite close to coming together in the, in the first corner. So this has got to be an ongoing problem, hasn't it? Yeah, and there's a beautiful irony in this happening as well, because on one level, Charles Leclerc was signed up in only second year to to give Sebastian Vettel a bit of a push and to sort of re-energize the team a little bit as this young upstart. It's a bit of a different direction for Ferrari. But then in the preseason, Mattia Bonotto said, well, of course, we're going to give Sebastian Vettel the benefit of the doubt in the 50-50 situations, maybe to take a bit of pressure off Charles in, in his sort of junior year. But then I guess he just didn't expect it to happen so quickly. So it's sort of three twists in this story. And despite having all that time to prepare for it, it really seems like on the basis, not just of the first three aces, but especially China, that it's not really been worked out 100%, which is, again, kind of strange for Ferrari, given they're, well, they're meant to be the experts in this kind of thing, isn't it? So it's definitely not going to go away. But the question is, how can they... Uh, adapt to this situation given they've already set so many rules up for themselves to obey if Leclerc is going to be this quick for the whole year it's a nice problem for Ferrari to have though isn't it you know we we spent so long bemoaning Kimi Raikkonen's occasional (laughs) cameos of competitiveness in the Ferrari Um, now they've got Leclerc properly harrying Vettel that's that's what you want to see Um, it looks I think ham-fisted on one level but if you take all the decisions that Ferrari made in isolation in those races, they 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 make sense to me. In Australia, the two cars nearly collided at the first corner. So when you, you're, you're coming to the end of the race and you're thinking, well, we're, there's no way we're going to change our result here. What we don't want is the quick young upstart accidentally colliding with the nominal team leader at the first race and obliterating those points we've managed to salvage. 
in Bahrain, the clerk got pole and was brilliant, but he fluffed the start. Vettel was ahead, and so suddenly you're in a situation where the slower car is leading the faster car. And I don't think Ferrari were really ever going to order Leclerc to just remain behind. I think they were just trying to work out what the best thing or the safest thing was to do, given they knew the faster car was coming back and Leclerc just took the decision out of their hands by making that passing move. Uh, And then in China, again, you've got Vettel, fractionally the faster car in qualifying, gets blocked by Bottas at turn one, ends up behind Leclerc. Leclerc wasn't making any inroads into Bottas ahead Mercedes were getting away it just seemed like well we need to try something Vettel is quite close to the clerk he's complaining he's being held up give it a go and ultimately it didn't work out for them but Vettel made mistakes didn't he once he was let past he locked up a few times didn't really make an impression and then the biggest problem I felt was that Ferrari didn't react well after making that decision in terms of how they dealt with the clerk's race and his strategy yeah I think that's certainly the case that his strategy didn't work especially well. I think. I think the thing I'd like to have seen is maybe them being a little bit quicker on the Leclerc Vettel thing. I think they hoped it would resolve it itself. I mean, Michael, would you have liked to see Ferrari order Vettel past earlier? Yeah, not only uh, the order quicker, but if the car were just quicker in the first place, I guess they wouldn't be in this situation. But I think uh, it, I take your point that all these decisions sort of make sense on their own at the time. They do, and certainly Australia was a bit of an unusual example, right? I think by the time we got to the end of that race, Ferrari was almost a little bit shell shock that actually they were as slow as qualifying and practices suggested and they just wanted the race to finish yeah. and they were happy to see it like that and Bahrain again I don't think there were any prospect of holding Leclerc behind but I think all of these decisions on balance and especially the second half of this Chinese Grand Prix point to a lack of match fitness if you like in the strategy department and sort of to get to your point Ed is that yeah early on they could have made this decision much faster they've been more decisive but it just feels like they're well, of course, they're not used to making these decisions, I guess, as we already sort of foreshadowed having Kimi Raikkonen as the partner for so long. But it just seems like they're caught a little bit unawares in every one of the three races when you know you should probably be arguing that they know Leclerc is this quick and that these situations can happen and that they need to expect to be more decisive because I think every race that's going to be a question for them now. I think you've touched on the bigger problem, though, Michael. The, the car is just not fast enough and if you take <laughs> if you take china uh the ferrari decision okay it might have been a bit slow but you know it was born of trying to take the fight to mercedes somehow you know they were they were caught yeah. out mercedes were much more competitive in china it looked like they corrected the aerodynamic imbalances they had from bahrain and you know ferrari were three tenths down vettel to pole i think um, but they were trying to do something anything to to reverse that situation and they got i think caught out by the pressure from behind, Red Bull were much more competitive in China than they they were in Bahrain, and much more competitive than they looked in qualifying because of the shenanigans that Max Verstappen had at their final two corners. And I think that pressure was something that Ferrari weren't really counting on. And to manage the threat of Verstappen from behind, which is ultimately what they needed to do to get a slightly better result, would have really meant ignoring Mercedes and accepting that they're just too quick and we can't race them. And that that's probably the biggest mistake Ferrari made strategically. I think that's a weakness we've seen for a while as well because there were occasions last year where they were more concerned with having a forlorn attack at a Mercedes in front and not worrying about Red Bull. Singapore springs to mind where they, mm-hmm. just, they just had no chance really of attacking Hamilton. And in China, okay, Vettel wasn't a million miles away from Bottas after the, the second round of pit stops had been had been forced but realistically 
the car didn't have the pace to, to beat Mercedes. And I feel like they put themselves in harm's way. They knew Verstappen and Red Bull were, were quick because Verstappen, of course, had been ahead on the first run times in Q3 and might well have outqualified at least one of the Ferrari. Well, it had been difficult to get between them because they were so close, actually. So you can say he might well have outqualified the Ferraris had he got that second run in. So I feel like they need to know who their battle is with because I always feel if third and fourth is your result, which which was possible for Ferrari there, then you need to bank third and fourth. Instead, they ended up with, with third and fifth. Red Bull were always going to roll the dice, weren't they? Knowing that in their case, being nominally third quickest at that track, maybe second quickest team, if they got everything together, there's no threat from behind. So they were always going to go aggressive. And I mean, Mercedes have fallen into this trap too sometimes when they're second best on a given weekend. We've got so used to just seeing the two battling or two cars from one team battling at the front. You kind of ignore what's going on behind. But when you're in Ferrari's position in China and you're getting squeezed from both ends, you can't rule out the possibility that the team behind you is going to is going to get in amongst your um get get in amongst it uh, strategically one of the interesting points that all of that sort of raises and i think in a broader analysis of the first three races as well this is the the really pertinent question going into not just baku but maybe more specifically the spanish grand prix as we like to always make that kind of a marker at this point in the year is that what is the the actual Ferrari pace at this point? Because if you were to sum up based on their actions in China, where they clearly felt, even though the evidence wasn't exactly there, that the battle was with Ferrari rather than uh, the battle was with Mercedes, I beg your pardon, rather than with Red Bull racing behind them. Is there still this feeling that perhaps we're going to find out has been completely misplaced that Ferrari is the race winning championship contending car that preseason suggested? Or is it going to take them time to accept, if indeed this ends up being true, that actually Ferrari is just back to being only the second quickest car and there needs to be a real mental shift in that team if they want to take the steps forward later in the year? Well, we really hope that that's not the case because if it does turn out to be that way, this is going to be more like a 2016 season where. Ferrari are desperately <laughs> struggling to keep Red Bull behind and Mercedes just disappear off into the distance. Uh, I'm not so sure if it's it's as clear-cut as you know, Mercedes have just got the advantage. If we, if we look at pre-season testing, Ferrari clearly had the edge there, not only from the external analysis that we did, but all the teams had Ferrari at least two, maybe three tenths clear of the pack at Barcelona. And that's a that's a cornering circuit. That's not somewhere where having a straight line speed advantage will just hand you bags of lap time. And that seems to be, in the early races, what everyone is saying Ferrari's advantage is, straight line speed. Australia, as they have done in previous seasons, it looked like they just didn't get the car into the right setup window. And there's been some talk from Toto Wolff, among others, that these cars with the aerodynamic changes that have been made around the front wings and obviously the subsequent ones you have to make as a consequence of that, have made the cars peaky again. Um, I guess since the 17 rules were introduced, teams have got better at broadening out their setup window, got better at understanding the tyres, how everything interacts and making the cars work better across a range of circuits. The changes that have been made over the winter, I think, have reset that game a little bit. And now you've got teams falling in and out of the setup window quite easily. I think Mercedes did it in Bahrain. They misjudged their drag levels and they were they were clearly 
second to Ferrari at that track. Red Bull really struggled. They were almost drawn back into the midfield. And then in China, you saw a bit of a reset the other way. Mercedes came out fighting. They had a car that was set up much better. Red Bull had a car that was set up much better and that gap to the midfield was there again. And it looked like Ferrari, having got things right in Bahrain, suddenly their car wasn't working so well in China. I think you will see those swings of performance probably through this year until all the teams get a better understanding of the aerodynamic demands and how the tyres work. It's quite interesting to look at the the performance profile of the cars because the reason Ferrari was so strong in Barcelona was that the, the corner speed, particularly in the faster corners, was, was outstandingly good. And then we've seen Ferrari... You need a good car, don't you? To go exactly, well at exactly. Barcelona, you don't just need a good engine, you need a good car. And so Ferrari does fundamentally have a good car. And that but, hasn't gone away just because they haven't been competitive in Australia and China. But we haven't seen quite such a, such a similar advantage in slower corners. So they're very good in the quicker corners. They're very good on the straights, particularly a track like Bahrain, which has four reasonably long straights, but not one super, super long straight. So we end up with this, uh, with this interesting little pattern here. And the other thing that was interesting is in Bahrain, in the, the DRS zone, in the main speed trap, Mercedes was actually showing a higher top speed. Whereas then when we got to China, which has the long straight, we actually saw Ferraris had a, had a top speed advantage with DRS open. So I think this talks about this. This speaks to different drag levels that they're running, different wing levels, how much proportional drag reduction you get from having the the uh, the, the DRS open. Because obviously, the more rear wing you've got, effectively in terms of downforce, the, the bigger the the drag reduction. So and it, larger rear wings as well this year. So yeah, there's, exactly. a, there's a whole new balance to be struck. So it's it's fascinating to. To, to see exactly how this balances up and uh, I think Baku will be an interesting one as well what, what do you expect for Baku Michael We're obviously long straights there but also quite a lot of, of slow fiddly corners if you want to look at it that way well this is such a difficult one as well isn't it because I feel like making any predictions after the last couple of races where it's really felt like oh you know of course Ferrari's going to have a straight line speed advantage of Shanghai it's going to be very easy even Mercedes thought that but Clearly the difficulty is, and you sort of touched on it there, is these the difficulty of keeping these tyres and, and the setup in, in the same window at the same time. And on a track like Baku, okay, engine speed is going to count for a lot because they've got uh, the equal longer straight or it's the longest if you include that last, that last kink of a corner. But that also means that there's so much time for the tyres to cool down, which means that whole first sector of the lap could be enormously compromised. Now that's the significant Ferrari problem. And it should also be added that uh, in China, the the straight line speed advantage during the race was not so prolific. And of course, there can be reasons for that that sound simply that the advantage has been overstated. There are situations in the race that can lead to that. But uh, I don't know if it's so safe to say, well, of course, Ferrari is going to have an even bigger theoretical advantage there. And I think this could actually be a real test. And if they end up being really second rate here then maybe we can point more accurately to yes this this is sort of the problem well, they certainly need to strike back you know regardless of how much of an advantage they have over mercedes or the other way around you know three one twos in the first three races for mercedes they're already building a massive advantage in the championship ferrari's let one golden opportunity to win in bahrain slip so they really can't afford i don't think to go to spain having had four defeats in a row yeah, very much so. It'll be a, a massive blow. And it's interesting you mentioned the tyres, Michael, because they, they they haven't been talked about maybe as much as they, they should do because we have seen a change with the tyres this year. We'll come back a bit more to this later on when we talk about the strategies, but just purely in terms of getting them into the window. Obviously, it's it's the thinner gauge tyres, the thinner tread, like we had at a few races last year, Spain uh, among them. 
obviously this allows the drivers to push a little bit harder because it's, it's harder to, to overheat the tires because you've got less less tread movement going on because it's the tread movement really that that, uh, that that generates the heat so it's almost harder to get the tires in certain conditions working and then it's harder to keep them in the window and we've seen some teams house for example struggling williams as well with they get going and then if the tire temperatures fall out the window they just never they never get it back and if the if the compound itself which is kind of the bit between the carcass and the surface isn't at the right temperature it's not switched on you're not getting the the proper chemical bonding so it's interesting to wonder how big a part in these setup problems getting to grips with uh with the thinner gauge tread tires is yeah exactly especially especially considering that i mean these thinner gauge tires sort of came about to try and prevent blistering that was starting to occur with these types of cars we saw it at a couple of races I think it was three, wasn't it? Spain being one of them, uh, that these were, were sampled and then they decided this was the right way to go. And so, yes, one problem has been eliminated, but strangely enough, we've got this additional one. And Haas is such a great example. You know, it's easy to kind of forget Williams at the back, I suppose, because they're not really anywhere in qualifying either. But the fact that Haas is really qualifying in the top 10, even though he didn't set a, a top 10 lap time this weekend, of course, uh, and then absolutely be nowhere in the race, scored no points in China, is such a really good example of how finicky it is to set up for these tyres because you can get it in one lap pace. And I guess it also shows how far off uh, qualifying pace the race pace is. But to manage them over the course of a race is is such a dramatically different challenge. Um, and Haas is such a great embodiment of that. And just it, and while it's not happening such significance at the bigger teams, it shows that they can, it can still happen to some small degree. And that's perhaps what's going on with Ferrari. Yeah, well, Ferrari didn't like the uh, narrow gauge tyres yeah, to begin right. with. Yeah. You know, they, they they struggled at Barcelona last year with those, and that that led to these conspiracy theories that Pirelli were favouring Mercedes, etc. And <laughs> yeah. Sebastian Vettel actually came out publicly and rubbished that. Well, they, they actually because they in the post Spanish Grand Prix test. They tried the standard tyres again, and actually Vettel said, mm, "Actually, we've tried these now, and yeah, there, there is mm. a there is a problem there." But they they certainly weren't comfortable with them in the same way that Mercedes were initially. So, okay, by Silverstone, where those tyres were employed again, Ferrari were competitive. But just because you're good at one track doesn't mean you've got the tyre science nailed across the board. And that's something Mercedes has been weak at in the past with different versions of the Pirellis. Maybe now they're stronger and Ferrari are weaker. That would definitely play a role in terms of you know, performance swings and also whether you get the car set up right and of course we can't forget the the lower tire blanket temperatures as well mandated for this season mm. all of that will will come together in combination with the aerodynamic rule changes to to reset the competitive order to a certain extent because all that learning that people have built up over the last couple of seasons is not totally thrown away but you have to start again with a lot of things and, and try and find the sweet spot again and the general sensitivity of these tyres as well. Um, of course, there has been all that learning over several years, as you said, but the fact that you change a variable like this, which is not insignificant, does mean, and, and of course, then reduce the the range of tyres, which, okay, maybe doesn't have a huge effect, but it does mean, at least in, as far as Pirelli is concerned in terms of choosing the optimum tyre for the circuit, means that you've got to be a little bit rougher with that calculation, means that, yeah, there's a little bit more work to do because there's less sort of, um, you can rely on their tyre inherently as well as that knowledge you've built up over the last couple of years. And there's also an interesting question of when it comes to the interaction of the tyre, uh, the tyres with, with the aero regs, how the, the kind of aero centre of pressure is a little, might be a little bit less controllable. It might be harder to get it as far forward as you might want, particularly for a circuit like China, which is front limited. So maybe tools, uh, teams having to kind of learn a new sort of set up box of tricks, use different tools and different methodologies to, to get things to work. And it, 
it's doubly difficult, isn't it? Because mentioned in the introduction that these early races, they're a weird set of tracks. Albert Park's a complete outlier. Bahrain is, you know, it's got four straights on it, but they're not super long straights. It's a, it's a traction circuit as well. So that's slightly different to China, Front Limited. And it's got one massive uh, long straight on it. And then Baku's all over the place. And so you end up with a season that's really lopsided. So teams are not are not going they'd be much happier if they had three or four orthodox circuits in a row because then you can start playing with some of the things you've learned and some of the assumptions rather than almost try, trying to take on a different set of track sensitivity challenges every time you you go to a new race it'd be a bit boring though wouldn't it <laughs> what would we be talking about <laughs> well that's the thing isn't it it's it, teams love to eliminate variables and unknowns and that kind of thing and by as you said changing the, the rules and changing the tires it's moved the various goalposts around the place, which is just it's just brilliant, isn't it? I mean, coming back to that original question about who's quicker, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel that the Mercedes fundamentally now is the is the quicker car. I think looking back at, at testing, you know, I, I think the testing analysis based on the evidence, you, you can only an- analyse the, the data and the evidence that's there. And clearly, Ferrari did, did have an edge there. But of course, Ferrari, uh, Mercedes rather, bought effectively a new car all new aero surfaces to the to the second test having decided to start with a, a much earlier kind of iteration of the car and then hit the second test with the uh with the, the kind of proper version <clears throat> and i feel like mercedes probably got to the end of testing and they were still four days behind on running and then by the time they got to australia they sifted through the data and they had kind of improved their understanding of the car so i think maybe we start to get a better read a better read of it but it, it is interesting that we've had this swing in Bahrain, which I think probably is a track which more than people think plays to engine strength, not necessarily maximum speed. But I always think we have to be careful with with looking at straight line speeds because it's only a snapshot, isn't it? You only you only see one moment on the straight, whereas actually time lap time on the straight can be gained all the way through. And very often you'll see people with higher top speeds, but actually a different car's quicker on the whole straight because it's getting the the the, the pace earlier on. But I mean, the, the encouraging thing for Ferrari will be that. If if you're going to try and compare track characteristics, Baku is more similar to Bahrain than it is to the other two circuits we've been to in terms of low speed corners and traction zones being important and straight line speed, as we've already mentioned. So you would expect Ferrari to be more competitive there. And if they're not, then you would start to think, well, they could be in serious trouble. And what they really don't want to be doing is going to Barcelona having had to completely rethink their aero concept, which is what Nico Rosberg alleges is is their problem. Because in, if, if they have to do that, they're going to fall even further behind uh, Mercedes, who are just going to be building on what now looks to be actually a fine basis for this season. And ironic, considering that after pre-season or during pre-season, when these two cars emerged with different approaches to the change in the aero regulations, there was talk in that first four days when Mercedes, I guess, had an A-spec car, if we want to call it as such, uh, there was talk about them being the ones who would have to reconsider their aero philosophy. And of course, it's still too early to say if either of them have it correct or maybe both of them have it correct. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, after Bahrain, to go back to your point about sort of straight line speeds and how misleading or otherwise that can be, that, okay, Ferrari looked really good there. But then when you get to China, it's less so. And the feeling really is that Mercedes got the balance in terms of their priorities wrong in Bahrain, isn't it? That they were so quick in those twisty bits, as they kept telling us. And and that advantage didn't fall away too much in China, but the balance back towards straight line spin neutralized it a little bit. And, and they ended up only a couple of tens ahead, um, which is not a huge reversal from Bahrain, but big enough that suggests that, it, yeah, it's kind of like finding out a, about how these cars work still. But 
I guess Mercedes perhaps able to lean a little bit more on that experience they've had with their cars, like a really stable basis of experience over the last couple of years to to find those final tents. Whereas if you compare that to Ferrari, who are, I guess in some respects, it seems strange to say, relatively new to being in what we should say is championship contention, uh, they're struggling more to fine-tune that car at pressure moments when you've only got a couple of hours during practice. It was interesting as well in, in China because looking at Friday practice, the pace both on single laps and long runs between Ferrari and Mercedes was very, very similar. And actually, we saw this pattern of Mercedes had a big advantage in sector two, which takes you from just before turn six round to just before the, the long corner that leads onto the back straight. So a very twisty middle sector. But they were losing out uh, to various degrees a fair bit in the first sector, not so much in the last sector. And then by the time we got to Saturday, things had changed. It's, it's almost as if that kind of speaks to Mercedes working through their setup ideas. And, and I think they kind of nailed the compromise on the Saturday, which kind of feeds into to what you were saying there about getting the setup ideas uh, ideas better as well. So it will be interesting to see what what we what we get in Baku. And I think just from a, a neutral perspective, all you really want to see is a battle, isn't it? So I think uh, you know another another Mercedes win in, in Baku would not be great for the season. So we could kind of do with Ferrari uh, hitting back. It's going to be uh, it's going to be tough. Well, should we move on to? the general uh, shape of the season we, we've seen we've talked about a few of these elements but seeing as we've got Michael from the F1 Strategy Report podcast wanted also to delve into the kind of racing we've seen this year so what's your verdict on the rules that are designed to make following easier and the strategic variation we've had and of course how the more durable tyres have, have fed into that in terms of the idea was it was going to be a bit easier to follow and drivers could attack the tyres more, hence better racing. Well, to return to that idea that these first three Grand Prix, and what's the famous phrase we love to say is that not representative, nothing's representative in Formula 1 anymore, it seems. None of the tracks are, but certainly these first three, and certainly Australia, is not necessarily a great indication of how well these regulations might be working, especially Australia, given it's so hard to pass. But I still think, to take Melbourne as an example, as the first sort of acid test, it was encouraging that early in the race, at least, the field spread wasn't as massive as, I think I remember back to 2017, for example, when the the fast car regulations, if you want to call them that, were introduced. After five laps there, I don't think there was even a single car within two seconds of the one ahead, whereas this year it was more temperate and we saw some of the midfield drivers now start to come around whereas they were a bit more skeptical in pre-season than anything was actually happening with these new aero regulations that are meant to make it easier to follow and a lot of them have been saying that actually there is a difference and and maybe if you want to call the deciding vote Lewis Hamilton who's absolutely adamant that there is no difference maybe that's because he's so used to being in front all the time that he's never had to deal with following another car and when the few occasions he does have to do it it feels pretty bad um, that of course speaks to the fact that it's not cured and it's not meant to be cured but it does seem like as far as the aero is concerned it's having some amount of effect I think the closer racing is at least lasting longer particularly in the midfield it's always been close there but it feels like there's a, a greater closeness and and maybe the Ferrari before the team orders section of the Chinese Grand Prix where Sebastian Vettel was following so closely yes Ferrari always seems to have been able to do that a little bit better than Mercedes but I thought that was a good example perhaps that you can do that for a while now and Kimi Raikkonen has said that following is definitely easier from his vantage point, his new vantage point in the <laughs> midfield with Alfa Romeo. And I, I feel like he would know because he spent a long time at Ferrari following other cars by not being the lead one. So I kind of feel if he's if he's saying that, bear in mind he's been in a lot of battles this year as well, then they probably are making a difference. I get I get the sense that that racing is a little bit 
easier this year. I mean, we've talked at length about how Australia is an outlier and always difficult, but there were a few more moves, it felt to me, at that race than there have been the last couple of seasons. Bahrain was an incredible race, um, helped, I think, massively by the extra DRS zone. Uh, and I think that's something that Fauna needs to really run with. Um, I know it's unpopular um, and purists decry it as a gimmick, but you can't have your cake and eat it in this situation. If you want super fast cars, that's going to mean lots of downforce. If you want close racing, you need to take away some of the downforce and reduce the speeds of the cars. But with DRS, you can have both to a large extent. You can have super quick cars and you can take some of the of the elements of what makes them difficult to race with away. And I think if you just get the, the combination of DRS with the circuit layouts right, actually you can create conditions for really exciting races. We saw that in Bahrain and then we went to China and it was back to the standard two DRS zones and it was it was quite tame. So maybe Formula 1 just needs to be a bit more aggressive with some of the tools it has already at its disposal. I think we should note it's not just about the, the regs, is it? It's a three-dimensional equation, the, uh, the following, because... We've got several things. We've also, as well as the the aero eggs designed to make the cars a little bit easier to follow, we've also got a more powerful DRS in terms of the the amount of drag you're reducing. So that should make it easier to overtake in the in the DRS zones. But also the 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 slightly less sensitive tires, the more durable tires, means that you're not getting that effect from if you're sat just behind somebody, you're killing the tires completely. And and, and you they can be. I think drivers can be sit behind people a little bit more and not. Kill the, kill the grip in their tyres. So I guess that that plays a plays a, a part in it. Yeah, absolutely. The tyres, I think, have been uh, maybe the, the understated success so far of the year, at least anyway. Uh, the start of the year does always tend to be, because of the unknown factor, maybe a little bit more exciting, I guess, or there's, there's a little bit more variation. But even though, and I think we'll see over the course of this season, and people may be disappointed to see, considering this was meant to be a big change and you know, the racing's better and faster and so on and so forth, that we'll probably end up having the same configuration of stops for most of the season. But the difference is, and this sort of speaks to the, the philosophy that Formula One likes to take with its racing, that faster is better. And it's motorsport, of course it is, so that's sort of the point. But there'll be so much less of that one-stop management kind of races. And I think Mexico last year was a really, and I know Mexico is an unusual track, but a really bad example of that where, you know, you're lapping so far off the pace that it's it's frustrating for everybody. But at least now you have that following aspect. The tires are not overheating so much while at the same time you are traveling closer to the car's ultimate performance. I know Alexander Elbon's obviously a, a debutant this year, but I think he said after his first race, he was impressed how close to the limit he felt like he was pushing the car on race pace compared to Formula 2. And often we laud the junior categories for having such better racing and being able to go flat out for various reasons. So all of those things, I think, have combined to to give racing a, a bit more of an edge compared to previous years. And I guess the only thing that bears remembering for anyone who who's watching the racing still a little bit disappointed is that these rules aren't meant to make overtaking easier, only following easier. You know, we might end up with no increase in overtakes, but still have a way better season than we did last year uh, because these rules will be effective. Well, I think if you look at the, the races so far, Australia was basically a two-stop race. There are a few oddities. Williams is uh, Williams did a different approach. Bahrain, it was a two-stop race. Uh, China did at least have some divergence in that we had there were a dozen new two-stops. And two-stop was kind of the default strategy, but we did see that quartet of drivers, which was Ricardo, Perez, Reichen and Albon from 7th through 10th place, who successfully one-stopped. I think China was distorted a bit 
because a lot of the front runners were trying to one stop, and then Red Bull, as they often do, forced the issue by doing that that sort of surprise early second Verstappen stop, and then Vettel reacted to it, and then Merck thought, well, we better cover this, and they did the double stat pit stop. So China was probably the most oh, interesting. So I was incorrect then, so it was possible in China. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I just missed it. <laughs> well, China was strange. So only five people one stopped in China. The other one being Kubica and those four. Uh, but you almost feel like, like the the, it almost feels like that could have been a, a one stop. That's an outlying strategy yeah, yeah. rather than I, f- the I feel like strategy. More, more people yeah. got pushed onto two stopper than really, really wanted to. So it's it's a funny one, but but it is an interesting point. And I guess for somebody who's uh, whose podcast is called F One Strategy Report, Michael, that's is is it is it worrying that we're not seeing much strategic divergence, or is the fact that as you pointed out what's going on on track in terms of cars following closer the the promise of overtaking and that kind of thing actually means that we don't need the strategic element to, to mix things up yeah i mean i think sometimes people do get sick of just talking about tires and tire life right i mean that's as much as that's been a, a, a principal facet of strategy for the last couple of years sometimes in a one-stop race or you know okay let, let's take china china for an, an example a race that probably could have been a one-stop for the front runners but then you have a random element like Red Bull Racing throwing in a two-stop. What you want is that ability to have variation. It doesn't always have to be like that. But no, and not even in the in the way that sometimes we had last year where the race could be one-stop or two-stop and then we find out in the race actually it's a two-stop or it's going to be a one-stop. You want a grey area where you can do both and maybe both will be effective. And I note I think before this race Pirelli said – one stop and two stop, they were roughly going to be the same, um, depending on which tie you started on and so on. Uh, I think that's sort of ideally what you do want because you want strategy not to be dictated by the tires, but by the cleverness of the strategists. And then, you know, an extra element, the drivers being able to preserve tires. You know, Sergio Perez used to be so good at that, still is good at that, I should say, but was so renowned originally for that kind of thing, whereby there's there are influences on the strategy that are purely from the human perspective rather than well these tires are only going to last so long so you're going to have to change them we'll take a a brief hiatus now to have a quick discussion about the autosport igp manager team now of course igp manager available to download on ios android and available in browser as well you can use our sign up link that's in the the episode information of, of this podcast i have to say monaco ben did not go very well we were last and, and very last, I would say. Very last. Oh dear. Yeah, it's uh, there's been a, a sort of steady improvement of late, but yeah, Monaco Monaco didn't go well. Qualified a few tenths off the back, which wasn't too bad. And then, hang on, right, hang, on hang on, a few tenths off the back. Yeah, is not too bad. It, it's not. I thought you were aiming for midfield respectability. It's not and too then bad. Going in, from it, there, it's not too bad in the context of the race result. I think is the is the way we're looking <laughs> at it. So yeah, so we're okay there, and then we're on the right. The strategy wasn't particularly wrong, but. Well, just, you, you just can't a lack get the of strategy pace. wrong when you're at the back. Can well, no, you? that's true. Just a lack of pace and finished a, a fairly distant last. Very concerning. Very concerning. That is very concerning. Are heads going to roll well, uh, this well, early stage in the season or are you keeping a calm head? How are you going to react? What does your analysis say about why Monaco was such a disaster for the team? Well, the car isn't quick enough, is it? It needs more everything. It needs more downforce. It needs more grip. It needs more power. Everything. The whole lot. We need to we need to work on it. The research and development team is is doing well. We've we've gained. We've made a recent on, gain. Whoa, whoa, whoa. On doing recent, well. <laughs> recent gain on fuel economy. So that, that's oh, okay. very very good. So yeah, we just need some uh, some more performance. Uh, it's strange. In the past few races, we could blame the strategy at times for not optimizing the result. But I don't really feel there's anything we could have done. So yeah, Monaco was a real disappointment. Were you able to 
shine in other ways, such as holding up the race leader, Bernoldi style, or was it just Sadly. a race to forget? No, told? this this was a real race to forget. But uh, yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll get there. I mean, uh, it may have been that the setup was a little bit off. Obviously, you have to do the car setup before. Uh, you can if you want to kind of do the B team model and you can you can buy a uh, a setup of another team but we've been doing it ourselves and all our simulations tell us the setups are are right we're we're doing our we're doing our uh, our practice program and, it, and it's working fairly well the driver's certainly feeding back positively which is encouraging i don't think it's the driver's fault so yeah we just need to the drivers are feeding back positively even though you're several tenths off the back well they don't like the pace <laughs> they don't like the pace but they're uh, they're, they're they like the feel of your balance, slow yeah. car exactly exactly yeah so we just need to keep on uh, keep on developing it we're in for the long haul we're only six races in. Six races old, this team. Yeah, that is a long way to go in the season. But uh, maybe you need to start considering this B-team model. Well, the B-team model is an interesting question, isn't it? Of course, a great topic of discussion in the real world of, uh, of Grand Prix racing. But yeah, maybe we need to, to ally ourselves to a little bit more uh, copying other people's concepts as well to try and uh, shortcut the development process. But we've got all sorts of new... We've got new buildings coming online all the time, new facilities, new developments coming onto the car-specific areas we're, tr- we're trying to improve. And uh, yeah, I think all we can do is just uh, just keep on plugging away. But remember when... When new teams came into Grand Prix racing, the batch that came in in 2010, it took them a long time to score points. Yeah, and some of them disappeared. Exactly. Many of them disappeared. Well, they all did in the end, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you're doomed is what you're saying. No, no, no. We're still alive. We're still going and thoroughly enjoying the uh, the development program in uh, in IGP. We're, uh, I have to say, we are in quite a competitive competitive league, so the learning curve is very, very steep for us. Uh, you can you can feel your way in a little bit more, and I imagine most who, uh, who download and, and take on the game will start at a slightly lower level and, uh, and build their team up. But it's... Uh, it's a great challenge, and it's, it's fantastic to see the uh, the car performance. Those little key performance indicators are, uh, are improving, even if Monaco was a was a write off. So we're going to just say wrong setup compromise. It must be, even though the, the driver thought it was uh, it was sensible. So, uh, well, if you think you can do better than we can, uh, which wouldn't be too hard, uh, download IGP Manager on iOS and Android, available in browser as well. Check the sign up link, and yeah, show us uh, how you're much better at running a Grand Prix team than we are. It, it can't be it can't be difficult to be better than us at running a Grand Prix team in Monaco, certainly. Definitely not, definitely not. But uh, Very, very low bar to aim for. I'd say we're doing better than Williams, so there we go. <laughs> well, well, that's something. Every cloud, hey? Exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, download IGP Manager. And now we can go back to talking Formula 1 2019. One other aspect we've seen this season is, is the fastest lap. We've had three races with that with that point. Valtteri Bottas got it in Australia, Charles Leclerc in Bahrain, and then Pierre Gasly in Shanghai. Uh, ben, what's the verdict on the the rule change? I've I've complained about this. Uh, I think in our, our Chinese Grand Prix review podcast. So I'll let someone else have an opinion. Actually, I was a, f- a fan of this kind of change. I I think the more random elements you can throw in to to mix things up and um, potentially make it more exciting, the better. I don't conform to this idea that you know four and one just has to be one way and that's it. However, then I learned that only the top ten qualify for the fastest lap in terms of race order um which i thought was quite poorly communicated uh, and also i didn't really agree with i thought there should be the opportunity for a, a slower car on the right tire at the right point in the race to have a shot to get a point that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get okay so they've not gone down that route they don't want to mess with the championship order too much and i kind of thought well you know there's just an extra element to the title battle there when Bottas takes it so that point could prove crucial to him at the end of the season that's quite interesting Leclerc got it as you say in Bahrain and then Pierre Gasly got it in China 
and suddenly you start to see a big flaw in this this idea that uh you know he's basically the worst performing of the the top six guys he's got absolutely no threat to his position from behind so he can afford to just make a late race pit stop and go for the fastest lap point and not really be the guy that deserves it in many ways in terms of the race he's driven and yeah then suddenly it's kind of made me think about rethink my opinion if you like and now i'm not so sure that it's the the best idea in the world the other thing i didn't like about the gasly fastest laps i asked him after the race I said well was it like a qualifying lap and he just sort of said no not really i had the deltas on my on my dash going he, through he, the motions he, to get even the though point. he only took fastest lap by just under a tenth <laughs> so you'd say if on the penultimate lap of a race someone nicks fastest lap by a tenth of a second brilliant theater but it but it's not that that's the thing you I want to battle for it now, don't you yeah i that's guess the thing i guess the one question uh just what maybe you can answer michael is is it could just be that i'm just a little bit too well informed on it if you like because i'm sitting there thinking yeah gals you'll get fastest lap no problem but actually there aren't you know most people aren't watching with timing screens and sort of think about this they're, they're just sort of able to enjoy the race so you, you could I, well, in fact i saw uh saw channel four commentator ben edwards after the race and he said well it's a great thing to talk about at the end of the race so you could argue that and he did talk about it well, actually, because it was it, he only just pipped Vettel, I think it was, to the fastest lap. who had it for ages. Yeah, so, so, so there maybe, was this whole will he get it yeah, yeah. element. So, so maybe that does. I mean, what, what do you think, Michael? Do you come down on sort of my side, which, well, kind of Ben, which is I don't really like the idea of a point reward for not having a very good weekend. Or do you think there's a net gain for Formula One because it does create this extra dimension? And who cares if a driver every now and again gets it by dint of being the weakest performer of, of the fastest cars because it, it's it's livened up a race that didn't have a vast number of talking points? I am absolutely, depending on which race you ask me at, on one side or the other, I haven't <laughs> settled on an opinion yet. I absolutely started thinking it was ridiculous and unnecessary and then especially when it was qualified to being only certain drivers depending on where they finished which i think sort of identifies itself as being an imperfect rule to begin with i mean if it's not available to everybody but in australia it was really good because it added and i think ross braun said this this week that you know this was sort of the point of it, it adds something to the last let's say 10 or 15 laps when you can, usually the order's kind of settled and you want a little bit of excitement but then yeah, I wonder if as the teams you know, adjust to the idea that they can get this, and Toto Wolf still hasn't adjusted to it apparently, he doesn't like the idea that his drivers might uh, risk their race by going for it, but are we going to get to the point throughout this season that it is pretty much going to fall to whoever's sixth amongst the front runners, given they'll inevitably have a 30-odd second gap behind them or more, I think it might have been more in China in fact, that they'll just go for it. And then it's really up to, and Red Bull Racing did play it pretty well, didn't they? Where they pitted pretty much the last possible lap or maybe one lap early so that no one could even really respond because then Leclerc could have done the same, I suppose, couldn't he? And he would have had that gap to just snatch that one point towards the end. And if that's the case, all that talk in Australia about, well, you know, yeah, Bottas, he could, this could be important. If this is going to be his championship year, that one point could be all the difference goes to, well, he shouldn't really still be in contention, should he? He's just been stealing all the sixth best fastest laps. Yeah, there's a big danger. It could just become the Pierre Gasly memorial point <laughs> well, every well, if, race. Well, if you it? look at it, we, we've, <laughs> we've only got a sample set of three of three races and it's gone to one, mm. of two, one of two types of people. In Australia and Bahrain, it went to the fastest car, the fastest driver, and it should have been the race winner in both cases. Obviously, Leclerc had the control electronics problem and, uh, and, and dropped back. And then... In China, we had the the weakest of those performances. That that's my concern. That and this I'm doing a column right at the start, saying this is probably what's going to happen. It's going to go to the the winner in the quickest car, or it's going to go to someone who's who's struggling. <laughs> so it's uh, 
I mean, the fact we're talking about it, I, I can see the argument that it's a, a talking point and maybe, you know, you could say, well, it's just one point. But I think the the point I think both of you have made about the, the fact that it has to be in the top 10, that's when it starts to unravel because then you're saying, well, we want this mm. to happen. Oh, but we don't want people down the order to ridiculously get it. And you think, well, people I, in the top 10 are ridiculously getting it as well. Exactly, yeah. It, it's no less ridiculous for someone who's 17th in a worse car to stick on a set of soft tyres and go for it than it is for Pierre Gasly to get it by doing exactly the same thing but tugging around in sixth place. And it was actually quite fun. There, were, there was an occasion last year when Alonso went for it, wasn't it? Yeah. And there was another race where Alonso was... was there were some radio comms demanding to go for it. Yeah. But he did it in Hungary, didn't he? Did. he? So, I think a couple of so, years yeah, ago. So, so, you know, I, actually, I almost think, you know, if, if you're one of these people at the back because if, if you're down the order and you're not in a point scoring car you've probably got to do a very good lap in order to nick that point and I, I think that'd be much more valuable if if Huss had said oh Kevin Magnussen you're not gonna you're not gonna score so obviously he was quite <laughs> close so maybe Kevin wasn't a great example but you could come in and then have a go why don't they yeah why don't they just at the end of the race just take the bottom 10 away and then they can just have like a second qualifying and they get a, they fight over one point. They all do a fastest lap and whoever gets it gets the point. <laughs> well, that's that's basically in keeping with the, with the rule they've got, isn't it? So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, talk a talking point. So that's something, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it. And there is one other a rule we're, we're going to talk about, which is a proposal that's been floated for next year. There's quite a bit of pushback and it looks less likely to go through now, which is the, the, the qualifying proposal to have Q4. Now, Michael, what do, you, what do you make of that? The argument is that it'll create more jeopardy for the top teams and it'll also hopefully keep the broadcasters happier because they'll see more of the top drivers because ultimately people tune in to watch the top drivers and the criticism is they're all tuning in at the end of the session just to watch the, the top 10 shootout and not the earlier part and by creating this jeopardy supposedly so the argument goes they'll create more interest what, what do you make of it good idea bad idea i'm i'm impressed that the scarring from the last qualifying change has not been so deep that they're <laughs> contemplating another qualifying change relatively quickly uh i mean this is obviously way less dramatic right that it's q4 is essentially not adding anything but I think that's almost the argument against it is that I don't really uh, see that this will add very much to the spectacle at all. I mean, there's the talk about this actually really being focused at television broadcasters, right? Because you create an, an additional natural ad break, which is fine. If I mean, if it, that's, that's a fine reason to change it, I suppose, because it doesn't necessarily detract from the show. But I think the real problem with adding a Q4 isn't so much that you sort of just extend that middle part that apparently no one's watching anyway, but at least uh, in the current format of the sport, you'll end up with two essentially also runs in this Q4, which is meant to be the best of the best, the fastest of the fastest session. So, you know, in the last Q3 session, we just had a whole bunch of cars didn't run okay by accident, but uh, you'd essentially almost be getting that every Q4 session where, okay, you have the top three shootout, but then the two Renaults or a Renault and a Haas or whatever it ends up being won't really have any incentive to compete and you'll have a bit of a, uh, a bit of a farcical situation kind of almost is reminiscent of russia last year it was q2 though wasn't it where no one ran by combination of penalties uh, and guarantees of getting through anyway so i don't really understand the point of it if the idea is to focus on on the top the, the top cars the front runner cars i don't necessarily think it's going to do it if anything it's going to make it look even stranger because there'll be no battle for those bottom couple of places in that session the, the good thing at least is uh under this new 
regime in Formula One, they are at least going through the changes, getting the teams to simulate them to see what the effect will be. And that's why there's been the pushback because they're starting to realise they don't have enough tyres to make the format work properly. And you end up with these unintended consequences of, as you say, you get to Q4 and there's it's worth six cars running. It's absolutely not worth the other two running. So you get people deliberately sitting out parts of qualifying when they should be going for it. You'll get you end up in a situation where the top teams will sit out earlier parts to save tyres because they can bang out one run on a certain set and then just park it in the garage. All the teams that need to use the tyres to get through will be the smaller teams and they'll be further disadvantaged as you get to the later stages of qualifying. It seems to me the biggest problem is the effect you have at the moment of the top teams with the advantage they have being able to get through Q2 on a harder tyre and then at the circuits that it makes sense to do that, start the race on that tyre, which we saw in China. Really, if you want to to create more jeopardy, you need to maybe go back to having a situation where the top teams need to start on their Q3 tyre or Q4 tyre and the smaller teams can get the advantage of starting on free tyre choice, if you like, for the race, rather than messing with a format that broadly works quite well, I think. Yeah, that is, that is part of the proposal, uh, that they'd have to go back to the the Q, well, the last stage of qualifying tyres, let's call it, rather than the, the Q2 ones. But it's interesting, because talking about the whole jeopardy thing, that obviously people want grids mixed up by top cars falling out. But looking back, 2006, we had three-stage qualifying introduced. And since then, looking at the top three teams in the Constructors' Championship at the end of the season, since then, they've had a 96.7% strike rate of reaching Q2 and then an 88.8% strike rate of reaching Q3. So there's not that great amount of jeopardy. Okay, a Q4, you'll you'll lose a few more, but it's not going to make a, a massive difference. It frustrates me in general because there seems to be this fixation with one, they want qualifying to be pure and it puts the fastest cars to the front, but then they want to create all these things to scramble the grids. And I feel like you've almost got to commit to, if you want orthodox qualifying, you go with it. Or if you want to scramble up the grids in some way, commit to it, do it, own it, and actually say, "Yeah, we do want we do want things mixed up." And so we're going to find a way of doing it, rather than these sort of rather sort of weak attempts just to in- create a little bit more uh, un- unbalance. It just seems like a weird a weird thing to do. I mean, actually, the Q4 if they gave enough tyres, the Q4 change you could argue is a is a tiny improvement potentially, but barely, barely. I, d- I don't object to it monstrously if they've got the tyres, but it's fiddling around the edges isn't it really i don't i don't i don't really know what they're trying to do it's like they're trying to do create random grids by non-random means just seems pointless (laughs) yeah and i think i mean i think the fact that the 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 top teams are capable of qualifying more often than not or at least often enough on the harder step tire in q2 to get through to q3 sort of suggests that probably on balance you're not going to get too much additional jeopardy and i guess this and it almost links half the things we've been talking about this episode that the the real problem here is not necessarily that qualifying is too predictable or any of that sort of thing it's that the the spread of the field is too uneven because if you had a, a very even field most of these problems would be solved because you'd have someone else on pole every other week and you'd have more cars competing and you're more likely to get mercedes knocked out if renault and haas are within only a half a percentage of the speed or whatever that that would be at the particular circuit. So really, the problem that needs to be fixed isn't so much how many qualifying sessions you have, but it's trying to find a way to make the teams closer on performance because then you will have more unusual results. I think you're bang on there. This is Formula One not getting to the heart of the problem, isn't it? They can't, to the extent they want to, tackle the problem and try and balance up payments and this kind of thing. So they're they're doing these yeah. other things. So again, it's, I mean, and Ben, we've, 
done stuff on about this for years about how Formula One needs to decide what it needs to be, what it wants to be, and they need to make some tough decisions. But again, it seems like a, a weird qualifying seems a weird thing to try and get this effect. They're, <laughs> they're trying to trying to cry, kind of interfere with qualifying a bit, which works pretty well. I like the three stage qualifying. I'm quite happy with it. Yeah, and and they're, exactly, it's the popular part of the of the weekend, the most popular part. Uh, of the exactly, weekend. yeah, and it's always interesting. I'm always and it's always fascinating watching the drop zone battle. Really, really, it makes the whole qualifying hour really, really gripping. But but this is it, Ben, isn't it? It's Formula One needs to decide what it wants to do and actually do it, rather than decide what it wants to do, not do it, and then find some other slightly rubbish way <laughs> to do it. It's it's a little bit like the overtaking problem, following problem. That say people say they don't want the DRS, but you need to find a solution that replaces DRS if you want to get rid of it. You can't just say, "Oh, we want to do this." So, we'll, like the DRS is a is an imperfect solution to a problem. And they've not they've not really gone for the perfect solution. So again, I feel this is a very imperfect solution to a much 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 bigger problem. Yeah, it's 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 an answer to the wrong question, isn't it? That mm. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And qualifying, as you said, uh, Michael, they messed with that before, and it was a disaster. Everyone accepted <laughs> it was a disaster, and they they reversed uh, from it. Uh, they don't they don't need to mess with that element. If you closed up the field, as you say, then drivers making mistakes on their crucial runs in the earlier stages of qualifying from the top teams. We've seen it. Leclerc had to go back out in China to do a second run. Vettel had to do the same thing in Bahrain. All that ends up doing at the moment is costing them maybe a run in Q3 in the pole battle and they still end up on the second row at worst. What you need to see is that kind of mistake potentially eliminating them from the top top 10 shootout altogether. And we won't get that until the spread of competitive performance is is closed up that's the fundamental thing that f1 needs to address because as you say once you do that a lot of these other things that people are annoyed about will just go away by themselves what is positive about the the approach that at least has been taken is that as opposed to the last time we had a qualifying change which was you sort of heard about it and then all of a sudden it was in the regulations and everyone was trying to figure out why it was in the regulations the really nice thing is that we're hearing about these proposed changes as they're being evaluated, as you kind of touched on before, Ed. And that's also a really good sign because we know that the the rules in 2021, which is hopefully when we'll be able to address a lot of these issues and maybe if not bring people closer together, then following should be easier and so on and so forth, is that there's a real analytical approach that the sport is taking now to actually address the the right questions with the correct answers. So we should have a lot more faith than perhaps we used to have where the sport would just try and figure it out on the fly that we've given. And the sport's given itself several years to figure it out. It's it's got the tools to figure it out. And then hopefully we'll actually arrive at a a situation whereby these problems do get close to being solved. No, I think you're bang on there. The the evidence-based and research-based approach is is a vast improvement. And that seems to be what's putting pay to the the Q4 proposals. So uh, let's see what they, they come up with next. Well, it's been fascinating to have a look at some of the, the big stories of the season. So thanks very much, Michael, for for appearing. And uh, another chance to tell people what the F1 Strategy Report podcast uh, entails. It's always it's you and another guest usually, isn't it, at, at, after each race? Yeah, yes. Uh, oh, I haven't been nearly as gratuitous as I promised I would be. But after each race, yes, we analyse the strategic decisions uh, that went into the deciding each Grand Prix, how badly or otherwise Ferrari uh, messed up its strategy and how well <laughs> Mercedes managed to do it themselves. With a rotating guest every week, we have uh, feature all sorts of different people with different perspectives on how racing has gone down for the weekend. And it's only 30 minutes, nice and commutable. And uh, we try to have a, a good look up and down the field at what goes on throughout a Grand Prix weekend. 
I thoroughly enjoyed the, the post-China one where you had uh, Abhishek on, who's uh, he's always an interesting guy. And he just sort of said, I'm not really much of a numbers guy, but forget about the strategy. The Ferrari's just not fast enough. And I thought, yeah, you, you've just, you've just well, analysed China. that's just what it comes down to, isn't it? You, you can't rely on strategy to add another what, a half second to your pace or whatever you need. So sometimes that's all, the, that's all there is to it. And you can get it wherever you ordinarily get your podcast, your favorite podcasting apps. Uh, there are so many these days. Every day I feel like I discover a new one that I've never heard of. But you know, you can rely on Apple and Google and all those kind of ones. You can su- subscribe and give it a rating. I suggest you do that after you listen to it, though. You never know. Maybe you won't like it. But I, I hope you do. I think you will. That's perhaps a lesson Ferrari can learn. Well, uh, thanks very much, uh, Michael Lemonado. And also thank you, Ben Anderson. Well, do check out autosport.com for all the latest news from Formula One and the world of motorsport and our plus subscriber area, where for a small fee, you can read the world's best motorsport journalists. Pick up Autosport magazine out every Thursday and check out sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing magazine out monthly and motorsport news out every Wednesday. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.